0: Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. This episode, I'm talking to astronomer Robert Feeson about exploding stars, white dwarfs and his recent observations of an 850-year-old stellar collision.
1: I'm Rob Feeson. I'm a, an emeritus professor at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Um, I've worked at various places. I was uh, a postdoc at um, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. I got my PhD at the University of Michigan. Um, then I went on to the University of Colorado before I um, ended up in Boulder. Uh, after, after that, uh, I went to uh, Dartmouth after that. So I've been uh, doing uh, research in astronomy for over 30 years. Um, I'm now retired in the last few years, but I feel like I'm hardly retired. Um, I'm doing more stuff now than I have while I was uh, teaching, because I have all this free time. <laughs> you know, weekends are just another day to work. So, um, um, and I've mostly done work on supernova remnants and supernova. I um, I've studied pretty much all the famous remnants in the sky, so, uh, the the young ones, uh, particularly um, the Crab Nebula and uh, uh, another famous uh, remnant for at least astronomers is a thing called Cassiopeia, which is only 350 years old. It's the brightest radio object in the sky uh, outside of the. Galactic Center, so it's a it's a easy object to work on. Um, So, and I've also done things, um, older remnants, supernova remnants. Um, There's a thing called the Veil Nebula. The Cygnus Loop is what the scientists call it. Veil Nebula is very very pretty. It's three degrees in the sky. It's six full moon diameters. It's um, a favorite target for amateur astronomers. So that's so I've done a lot of work on supernova remnants. and then I've also worked on um, supernova themselves. I've had some students working <laughs> on the actual supernova explosions, and uh, we've done some I consider pretty important object, uh, 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 you know, the research on those objects that have broken um, some new ground on that. So I've done. But I've concentrated on, on the supernova remnants themselves. After all the flash is gone, okay, what happened? Uh, you know, so that's what I've done.
0: <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, um, a, a lot of our, our readership and our and our listenership are um, amateur practical astronomers and uh, astrophotographers. So a lot of those uh, super, supernova remnants, uh, particularly the Crab Nebula and the, the Veil Nebula, will be familiar to a lot of our listeners. Um, I, I Actually, it brings me on to something. Um, I often wonder how... How how do astronomers get get locked into that particular niche? You know, oh, I I study you know supernovae, I study supernova remnants, I I study red giants. How, how how do you actually how do you actually sort of nail down your your niche?
1: Well, it, it's it's um, out of laziness in a way. <laughs> uh, when you go to graduate school, you end up working with some professor that either is looking for graduate students or does research that you're sort of interested in or sounds interesting. And so you hook up with this person, man or woman, and you work on that topic for four or five, six years. And when you graduate, well, um, you try to get a job basically with other researchers in that field. So, So you're naturally just uh, channeled into after you, you know you don't go to graduate school thinking oh I'll work on this or that well you can if the school has someone that is willing to accept you in their research team in that particular field and sometimes you know it, it's amazing you you see some people they go to, into astronomy they want to study galaxies and uh, black holes or whatever and they end up doing something completely different that if you had told them what they're going to end up doing in astronomy, what? I'm That's not <laughs> too exciting. <laughs> so I worked with um, a person, Bob Kirshner, famous astronomer, American astronomer, who uh, was at the University of Michigan. And um, he's a big supernova researcher. And uh, I had dabbled in a few other topics, uh, peculiar um, um stars with chemically peculiar surfaces and uh, that seemed a little backwaterish. so supernova much more exciting they explode wow they're really bright they're they're tremendous they can out a supernova can actually outshine for a few days their entire galaxy that there's the host in um and so that sounded a lot more exciting so i did that and then um he was working both on supernova and remnants at the time so i could into the remnant game. Remnants, why would I study the remnants? Well, um, remnants are actually quite important because um, supernova in other galaxies, uh, they're just points of light. Whereas remnants that we can see in great detail in our galaxy, you can see the debris from the explosion. And uh, you can't really do that very easily. Um one of the things I did after graduate school I worked on following supernova for many years decades and at the time I s- started to do this this was in the late 80s um no one had actually thought about trying to find supernova that was still visible they all thought well they they get bright then they fade couple months later, they get so faint you can't study them anymore. Well, no. Actually, some of them, because the shock of the blast goes out and heats up and lights up the gas that's surrounding the progenitor star, the star that blew up, that stays bright, too, for a while. And so it turned out there were a couple objects. And I remember going to a couple meetings where I showed them, well, wow, here's what a supernova looks like 10, 15 years after. And they were like, whoa. Whoa, you can see. Now, not all supernova are still bright after 10 or 15 years, but um two years ago, two, three years ago, I uh, I and a graduate student, um, we detected an object, the remnant of a supernova that took place in 1941. Whoa, holy moly, that's that's 80 years. Um, we're not expecting now that you know it's sort of a cottage industry to go after these things it's very hard and only a few percent, if that actually show up late time, very late time. But it's all, it's a uh, supernova can be viewed as in environmental impact statements. You know, you have this blast and <laughs> the energy goes roaring out. And anything that's surrounding the star, it comes sometimes, oftentimes, for massive of stars that blow up, there's mass lost prior to the star blowing up. And that that stuff can heat up and light up and you can see, uh, again, not only the debris of the explosion of the exploded star, but they actually now get an idea of what the surroundings of the star was and hence what the um, in, uh, the history, mass loss history of the star. So it's it's very, there, there's all these little facets. But to answer your question, we get stuck in ruts and <laughs> to switch feels is very difficult because you need you need time to learn that field
0: um but you know as as you say you know you, you you haven't stopped even even in retirement and and that's sort of I suppose the the reason that we're speaking today is, is because of one of your your mo- most recent observations um which, which sort of um, it, it the discovery sort of uh, centers around white dwarfs doesn't it so i, I thought it'd be interesting to To start off the the conversation with that just just a description for our
1: listeners what 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 is a white dwarf so so um stars like our sun um and a little bit heavier will um evolve over billions of years our sun is a four and a half billion year old star and then about five billion years from now um it runs out of energy in the center and the core collapses a little bit and that gravitational potential energy of that collapse heats up the outer layers and the outer layers can expand to phenomenal sizes uh, and they become the surface become cooler and they become redder looking and these things are called red giants or and really big ones are red supergiants. okay so that gas is so far out if like in the case of our sun in about five a mere five billion years from now, uh, according to the theory, is that the sun' outer layers will expand out to past Earth, um, out past Mars's orbit, out get maybe out to Jupiter's orbit. That's tremendous distances, and the, the gas is so far out it's just gently tugged by the the core of the star's gravity, and so in in essence. That material is sort of lost by the star. And these things um, produce what's called planetary nebula. They were found in the late 1700s, 1800s, and they looked like round objects. They were not planets, but they looked like planets. And so we have this awful name, planetary nebula, gaseous planetaries. Well, wait a minute. They have nothing to do with planets. They have to do with the end stages of stars stellar evolution. Okay, well, you've expanded the outer layers of the star and the center of the star. Um, Usually, if it's under eight times the mass of the sun, the total mass of the original star, the core can't produce any higher uh, amounts of energy uh, by fusion. And so it becomes sort of an inert object. And so what a white dwarf is, is the core of a red giant or red supergiant that's sitting there just cooling off and they're very hot. They can start out a few hundred thousand degrees um, Kelvin and um, which is double that in Fahrenheit. But so they can get really start out very hot because you're looking at an exposed core of a star and they slowly cool off and they're pretty hot. And when things are pretty hot, they emit so much blue as much as red light. And so they look sort of whitish. And these are small things. They contain, can contain half or similar uh, mass to our sun. The average mass of a white dwarf is what these things are called white dwarfs because they're so small. They're the size of the earth, but they have the same amount of mass as the sun, roughly. They can be 0.6 times the mass of the sun or 1 times 10 to the well, one times the mass of the sun. But so they're, they're these things, white dwarfs. And they just, they sort of, they're just the, the cooling off embers of the cores of what were previously nor ordinary stars that expanded into this red phase, red giant phase. So that's what a white dwarf is. <laughs> um... <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> and they're incredibly dense, very hot, very small, size of the planet Earth, essentially, and literally very, very close to that. And um, their the density is ridiculously high. A spoonful would be many, many thousands of tons. Um, and, but they're not heating; they're not producing energy anymore. They're just cooling off.
0: I think with you know with that with that underlying context and that underlying knowledge, it it makes sort of what we're about to discuss e- even more interesting. Um, I think we should like definitely just. Delve into that. So, what is this this uh, observation or this this discovery that you've made, and, and how does
1: it relate to to white dwarfs? Okay, so um, just stepping back, so I work on supernovas, mostly remnants of supernova, and there's two f- types or two flavors, if you want to call it that, of how why why does a star blow up? I mean, really, why why does a star suddenly? commit suicide i mean it why does it blow up you actually blow up a star a star can blow up well in stars that are more than about eight times the mass of the sun there's an energy crisis they come into where they can't produce any more energy in the core um, than is needed to keep the layers warm enough and push the the gas pressure up high enough to keep the outer layers from just collapsing down And so um, a star around eight solar masses or 10 solar masses, or 20 solar masses, they run at some point in their lifetime. And it could be a few million years after they form, they uh, run into energy crisis and the core collapses. And during that collapse uh, by gravitational potential energy, the energy that you get when you drop something in a gravity field, where did that that energy to pull it down? that energy goes into pushing the outer layers up. So the core uh, collapse generates this enormous energy explosion. And so it blows most of the star away. And you can get, instead of a white dwarf, you get a neutron star or a black hole. So massive stars, and it's been known for forty or fifty years, the, the 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 canonical number, the number everyone uses, between turning from a red giant into a white dwarf, just sedately cooling off, to blowing up, is around eight solar masses. All right, the other type of way you can get an exploding star, is a, is in that white dwarf. Okay, if a white dwarf Um, has a binary companion, has a so it's a binary two stars, and actually, binary stars are actually fairly common, in fact, out of Uh, two-thirds of all the stars that you see in the sky are in binary systems. Um, Our sun is sort of a nod in a way. It's 30% likelihood that we're in a single star system. You know, in uh, Star Wars, there were two setting stars uh, setting in the original Star Wars episode. Um, So binaries uh, could have a white dwarf that was originally a red giant or red supergiant, and you have this other star. Well, that star... They're both born about the original star, the star that led to the white dwarf, and the other companion star, about the same age. So one star turns into the white dwarf first. Then the other star turns into a red giant second. Well, in the process, all that gas can get collected, gravitationally pulled into the other star, into the white dwarf. Well, it turns out that white dwarfs can't be any mass, any... Uh, random size and mass. There's a limit to how much mass can be um, contained in a white dwarf. It's it's 1.4 times the mass of the sun. Well, what happens if it's more massive than 1.4? It blows up. It <laughs> blows up for the sort of the same reason that the mass of core blows up. So you can get a white dwarf blowing up if you just push a little extra mass at its 1.399 times the mass of the sun just throw a little bit more mass in and then run like hell because (laughs) that thing's going to blow up and they're there and since it's a white dwarf they don't have a white dwarf the outer layers of the star the hydrogen helium rich layers they're gone and so um what you end up having is a star that blows up that has no hydrogen, helium in it, basically, and they're they're called type ones. And um, yes, and then the stars that are massive stars that have plenty of hydrogen in the outer layers, they're called type two. So there's ones and twos. Okay, ones no hydrogen, twos plenty of hydrogen. The object I was looking at, I was not expecting to work on this supernova of where both stars in a binary. Um, um, uh, merge together. You can get them to merge. Why would they merge? Why do they just start leave alone, just merge, uh, orbiting each other, orbiting a, a center of mass? Well, it turns out gravitation um, potential can be released from a system and you can lose that, and these things will slowly spiral in. It doesn't happen overnight. It will take 50 or 60 million years for two white dwarfs that were originally. Ordinary stars that will merge slowly together, and in the last few moments, there's an explosion goes on. All right. So, okay, some people think that's one way to get a normal what's called type one supernova. You just don't throw a little extra mass on it. You actually take two massive points, say half a solar mass, white dwarf, two of them, and you merge them together, you get a type one. Supernova. There's another scenario that when you get them to, together, if they're massive enough to begin with, like around the mass of the sun, it's one solar mass, if both of them are one solar masses, they can not destroy themselves completely. You get an explosion. You get it not as bright as a normal one uh, type one supernova, just an ordinary white dwarf blowing up, but you get something that's little less bright but remain there's a surviving star, of uh, uh, remains of the combined merged stars. All right, so that's that's the scenario. So what I did, um, I don't know how much detail you want to go into, but what happened was um uh it's an interesting short little story, backstory. So um Amateur astronomers. I've been working with amateurs in the last few years. Uh, they, the, the equipment that amateurs uh, astrophotographers have these days has just changed dramatically. Um, these new detectors, CMOS detectors, and these beautiful uh, high-quality refractor telescopes, and they they can take. Um, observations, hundreds of observations, over a month or so, just because their observatories are remotely controlled. They just type in what objects they want to look at, how how many exposures to take. You know, they're asleep. The telescope's operating remotely, automatically. So these amateurs have been taking some uh, images of the sky. So I've been working with them, and they've given me some great, great discoveries. Um, What other amateurs do also is they oftentimes try to find what we talk about as planetary nebula. And um, they're fun objects to find because they're bright uh, emission line sources, very bright. Uh, The gas glows and the emissions. And um, uh, one amateur, a bunch of amateurs to do this, they search catalogs that are online. And one of the catalogs that a lot of people look at is... um, um, This is infrared satellite NASA put up in the early 2000s called WISE. It stands for Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, WISE, W-I-S-E. And this amateur, his name is Dana Patrick, and he lives in L.A. And he, he, like a lot of amateurs, they go out and look at archival data is several data sets online and you can find interesting objects and and when they find something they name it after themselves they keep a track and this normally the 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 routine is you name it after the first two letters of your last name his name is patrick so it's pa and this one object he saw was a his his 30th detection was a was a ring a donut shape emission in the infrared. Uh, uh, way past what we can see with our eye, it's sort of the infrared that you t- you use for uh, sensors, for opening and closing doors and whatever, and turning on lights, it's it, that part of the spectrum. And um, he sent that uh, to discovery off to some astronomers in the United States using telescopes in southern Arizona. And uh, they looked at it, and normally you would see these things bright in emission, and certain filters can concentrate on those emission lines. And they didn't see a damn thing. They, they, they took 20-minute exposure and said, there's, there's nothing here. And Dana said, well, wait a minute, there's something there. I see it in the catalog. Why don't you guys try So then next year they tried with a bigger telescope than in Arizona, a three-and-a-half-meter telescope. Took spectrum of it. And that's really how you can really study these. You break the light up. You can see where it's emitting the brightest, and you can tell a lot about uh, the properties how hot the gas is and what the chemical makeup. And uh, they didn't say anything. In fact, they didn't even reduce the data. They said that that all the normal emissions that normally you see in planetary nebula the old uh, remains of of, uh, stars, the gas bags, um, not that there. So they didn't reduce it. Then um, some amateurs. had been communicating with some University of um, Hong Kong astronomers who often work with planetary uh, discoveries, amateur discoveries, and they they have a catalog, they have an online catalog of all these discoveries, known planetary nebula and suspected planetary, nebula. and they uh, they went out and used the ten meter telescope. Well, ten meter, tall. yeah, one of the largest on the on on Earth in Canary Islands, and and they took spectra and they didn't see anything either. They just walked away. They didn't reduce the data either. Hmm. But you know, planetaries have very hot s- stars in the center. That's the core of the remaining star, mm-hmm. and um, so they're usually blue, blue hot stars. So they, some French astronomers also work on planetaries. This is what pla- a lot of amateurs do, and they. The, uh, they said there's a blue star in this PA 30 object, Patrick number 30 detection. And they took a spectrum with a tiny telescope, an eight-inch telescope. They said this star is unlike any central star of any planetary nebula we've ever seen. Well, they sent that back to the University of Hong Kong Astronomers, and, and they got oh whoa, whoa. they got all excited. And they went back to look at the data they had taken, but not reduced. They didn't analyze. And they said, whoa, this thing is very interesting. So they started to prepare a paper, but the Russians beat them to it. The Russians used a six-meter telescope, one of the biggest telescopes Russia has. And they looked at the star. They saw the same infrared-wise catalog object, and they said, Let's look at this. And they saw the blue star in the center. They took a spectrum and they said, man, this thing is bizarre. <laughs> the star has a wind. Normally, start, like the sun has a wind of around 300, 400 kilometers per second. That's pretty fast wind. That's That'll blow your hair back. 300, 400 <laughs> kilometers per second. I mean, that's <laughs> fast. the fastest winds of ordinary, well, not so ordinary stars. The fastest stellar winds is what they're called. Is a couple thousand kilometers per second. This star in the center of PA 30 has a wind of an astounding velocity of 16,000 kilometers per second. Are you kidding me? I mean, 16,000, that's three to four fold faster than the fastest winds we've ever seen. So something's up here. So when the, the Hong Kong astronomers went back to look at that data, they said, Holy cow. This star is amazing, and the nebulosity, um, it's really faint, but it shows up in sulfur emission. And the sulfur emission seems to be expanding the ejecta of what may be a supernova, uh, gives 1,100 kilometers per second. Well, the Hong Kong astronomers are used to working on planetary nebulae which planetary energy expand very slowly, 10, 20 kilometers per second, which for Earthly span is outrageous, but for astronomical, that's that's almost dead slow. Supernova expands 10,000, 15,000 kilometers per second. So when they said 1,100, they said, whoa, that's really fast. And they look back at where PA-30 is in the sky. It's just about where in the sky um, Chinese and Japanese astronomers in late 12th century Saw a new star that lasted; they could still see it for almost six months. So they, the Congress members, came to the party late, but they said, "We've got an interesting object, and it's a remnant from a supernova that the ancients, Chinese and Japanese, they the Chinese made three records of it, recordings of it, and the Japanese said there were two separate sightings, recorded sightings of the star seen." In around where P-830 is, it's our current constellation, Cassiopeia. And so uh, anyway, so they published their paper in 2021, two years after the Russians found that, the amazing star. And I had work on the supernova, uh, another supernova remnant I was associated with 1181, the tw- late 12th century supernova. And uh, I thought, oh, the they, Hong Kong astronomers got it all wrong. No, no, they got it right. Um, um they so I looked right after their paper came out uh, two years ago. I looked at P830, I didn't see a damn thing. Just exactly what happened in 2013 <laughs> with, after Pat had had found it. I didn't see a damn thing. So I said that but then I read their paper more carefully and they said they saw sulfur emission. So in October of last year, the end of October. I had some time on a telescope in Arizona, and uh, I tried a couple of my main targets, and uh, they all fizzled out. They were not turned out not to be very interesting. So I I looked at P830, and you see the observation that resulted. That object looks like a fireworks explosion. It is there. There are fireworks explosions that are you know they go up and they sort of bang and explosion. This is perfectly symmetric. And all more than a hundred needle-like filaments coming radially, like a spokes of a tire, pointing back, and they point back almost to that crazy super high-speed wind star. That, as I said in the beginning, um, the uh, you can get a merger of two white dwarfs that still stays together. There's some remaining stellar remnant or, or star. That remains after the original, the after the explosion happens. And so that's why we think it's this other version of a one, a type one, where white dwarfs are involved, but it's now called a one a X. There's a history between why they threw an X at the end. The normal <laughs> one is a 1A, that's the classic 1A. We thought there was just one. So now there's one A's and there's 1ABs and all this other stuff, one A C's. So, but this one they Uh, We've only known about this particular subtype of 1s or 1As about full of 20 years. We don't understand them at all. And there's five or six different theories of how they might, what actually is exploding and how it does explode. But this is probably a 1AX. So we maybe have a very peculiar one white dwarf blowing up that leaves a remaining stellar object in this nebulosity now that we can really study instead of in a distant galaxy millions of light years away here we can it's not relatively speaking it's in our galaxy so it's relatively close so we can really take a look at it so that's a long discussion right there but it gives you the flavor of how how this discovery came to be and i just you know they, they the paper by the hong kong astronomer said oh it's oh by the way it's uh some emission in sulfur and i thought well, why isn't anyone taking a picture in sulfur? You couldn't see it in anything else. Why don't you just take a sulfur image? And that's what came up. And I, I took a 10-minute exposure and I said, this thing has detail. This has structure. So that's how it ended up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fantastic. The ob- observation in itself is obviously incredible. It's obviously Obviously, really exciting, and and the image is absolutely spectacular. But I, I was wanting to get to get your um sort of views on what what are the sort of wider astronomical or or cosmological implications of 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 this
1: observation? Do you think? Um, well, supernova turned out to be very important in general, in an astrophysical sense. They're the ones; they're the sites in, in the universe where you make all the heavy elements in stars that then get spread out into the space. For example, type 1A supernova, the white dwarf, is the standard scenario where you have, you push a white dwarf over its 1.4 solar mass limit. That generates almost a solar mass of iron. In fact, most of the iron in the universe comes out of these explosions of white dwarf that generate so much iron. All the iron that we see in the earth, ...was generated from previous generations of stars, white dwarf blowing up, that seeded the interstellar medium, the gas in a galaxy, with this products, this pollution, if you want to think of it that way, of heavier elements. And then planets and stars form out of that gas... And that's where all the heavy elements come from, because, you know, um, everything started out, we think, with hydrogen and helium, pure hydrogen and helium. Okay, stars make heavy elements. That's how they make energy. But how do you get the heavy elements out of the star? Well, you blow them up. Okay, that's how you get all the carbon and oxygen with the oxygen we breathe, the carbon that makes up hydrocarbons, hydrogen and carbon mixed together in molecules. That's how you get the iron. Type 1 supernova, an ordinary white dwarf blowing up. So that's the essence of why supernova are so important. They produce both the mass of stars, eight more than eight times the mass of sun, and the white dwarfs blowing up. They, they enrich the gas of that it's in a galaxy that eventually form new generations of stars and new, new generations of planets. So that's the importance on a wider scale. Um did, did you sort of
0: have to do any follow up observations or sort of f- f- further analysis um it, 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 in order to actually um you know conclude that that you were seeing what you thought you were seeing
1: yeah so after i took the images uh, i had a student at the university of um, from columbia columbia university in new york city he happened to be there with me and we were both excited that we had never seen anything like this i have never there's no supernova remnant in our galaxy that look anything like this this is unfortunately there's another nebula. I see that is called the fireworks nebula it looks nothing as good as this okay so um um the follow-up observation was um we took I took some spectra of the gas I wanted to see what it looked like it has no hydrogen helium aha okay it's a one it's exploding of a White dwarf, okay, and the fact that you see in this core, on the center of all these spiky filaments pointing back to it, okay, uh, that so this looks like what some people think is a one ax, okay, great. The spectra showed that it's expanding at eleven hundred kilometers per second, just exactly what the Hong Kong astronomers finally came out with. Great, they get an age of nine hundred of uh, nine hundred and ninety years, almost a thousand years. Well, wait a minute. They connected to the 1181. That's 850 years old, roughly speaking. They had an error of 300 years. It could be plus 300, uh, 1,000 years plus 300, so 1,300 years old, or, <clears throat> sorry, 1,000 minus 300, so 700 years old. So it, it the bracketed the 1181, 850 years old. They made a mistake in the calculation. And when I know how big the object really is, and we now know how far away it is, you just, so you know physically how big it is and how fast the stuff expands, you can determine its age. The age I get is 850 years. (laughs) And as I wrote in a paper, almost a little too good. The error (laughs) bar for me is uh, 60 years, plus or minus 60 years. So... It sure looks like the 1181 supernova that the Chinese and Japanese saw in early August of 1181 AD. All right, so that's the follow up. Now, I am trying to, um, uh, this coming week, next Friday, a week from today, is the deadline for submission of what um, for proposals to use the James Webb Space Telescope. Well, now, the James Webb Space Telescope, this thing was found, remember, in the infrared, in the wise infrared images that look like a donut. Okay. So we know it's bright in the infrared. Webb Space Telescope is, is built to do basically infrared imaging and, and observations. So I and some collaborators are are busy writing proposals to observe this object with the Webb Space Telescope. The Webb, now on the ground, the images I took were, they were okay, they're pretty decent images, but the either Hubble or Webb can resolve this thing in tremendous, 20 times higher resolution. <laughs> Well, will look like blurry images after we look at the at the James mm-hmm. Webb or the Hubble Space Telescope images. I mean, I'm expecting these things to look like spokes, thin needle-like spokes coming out of a out of the source. Um, so we're busy writing that proposal and and uh, so that's the follow up, and we're going to try to do both Hubble and. James Webb Space Telescope images. And and we know it's bright in the infrared. So what does it look like in the infrared? How how spiky does it look? And the Webb can detect dust. The the debris of this exploded merger of two white dwarfs should be very rich in Everything but hydrogen helium should be rich in carbon and oxygen and, and magnesium and sulfur and uh, argon and and silicon. The whole, the, all a lot of heavy elements, heavier elements than hydrogen and helium. And so they form dust. Those elements in large quantities can form dust. Okay, that may be the source of the infrared mission that Wise um, Telescope built and launched in the 80s. In the, I'm sorry, in the Two thousands, early two thousands, so, so that's the follow up.
0: That's so cool. I, I mean, you know, I, I wish you well with, with with that proposal, and I would and I would love to, to see what what the web follow up is. But I also um, think love thinking back to to what those you know twelfth century astronomers must have seen and what they must have thought. I mean, they, they must have sort of. I guess they sort of had no idea what they were looking at and perhaps they just didn't you know um uh, sort of would not um ancient Chinese astronomers at that time they, they might have thought that that's like a like, like a harbinger of doom or something or you know some sort of a, a, a astrological um you know
1: <laughs> so in China and in Japan there were court scientists if you want to call them courts, uh observers of the sky and um it was a risky business back then being one of those because if, if uh, there were Comets were portends of of doom or success in battle, but you could look at it both ways. These new, like what, what the ancients in um, the uh, Oriental countries called them, were guest stars. They were guests. Show up for a little bit, and then they did, they move on. And um, they were different from comets because comets moved in the sky mm-hmm. as they orbited the sun, like the, the planets. Um, these so-called gas stars would bright shine bright for a few days and weeks, maybe, and then slowly fade, never move, in where they were originally seen. So They were different, and the colors of them. Uh, so there were general portents of doom and gloom, maybe, <laughs> and but uh, the court astronomers had to be careful. If they would sometimes changed the color of the guest star to the emperor's favorite color. So it was a good sign in the heavens. The gods were (laughs) shining down um, favorably on the emperor. So when we read these accounts, oh, and the star was yellow and then it turned red. Well, we don't know if they were telling the truth or if the emperor didn't like the color blue but oh yellow yellow is okay and yes. that, so um but yeah what did they think it was going on it was a sign from heaven literally a sign of heaven and the uh, it was easy for them to see these uh, events because to ancients they spent a lot of time outside um and to them their tv set there there was the sky so anything occurred in the sky they would notice and the fact this object just to complete the story was um we now know how far away this pa30 nebulosity was is and we know how bright it was based on the general um reports from the uh Chinese and Japanese and it turns out just like the <clears throat> the 1ax supernova or less bright than a normal supernova, this turns out to be also probably less bright. So it fits the picture. So we have a beautiful object that has scientific importance, and then we have this thing connected to history, the Chinese records, so, there's this connection of modern astronomers and, and modern amateur. Amateur, remember, found this in the sky before the professionals found it. And the professionals couldn't make hands or tails out of it at first. And I got involved because uh, uh, Dana Pacek had asked me to uh, write a proposal last year to look at his nebula. And I said, Look, there's nothing there. No one can see any damn thing. And he kept <laughs> pestering me. And I said, Leave me alone. There's nothing here. And then I sent I take the picture and I sent it to him and he was over the moon. He was like, wow, this is great. There's some real interesting structure and it's going to be important for understanding this particular class of of stellar explosions. So there you go.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of nice that the, the story came full circle, you know, when you think of sort of the 12th century astronomers looking at it, not knowing what it is, it disappears. And now here we are, you know, with our... Infrared space telescopes, you know, potentially going to, you know, observe it. I mean, they, you know, 12 century astronomers, if you told them that we were going to do that, they would just be blowing their minds, wouldn't it?
1: Yes. I mean, and, and of course, they were amateurs too. They were, yeah. but they didn't have the telescopes. But um, yeah, it's at every level, they were sort of stunned to seeing this new star show up in the sky. It was about as bright as Vega, the star of Vega, a little bit brighter. Um, so it's not as, quite as bright as the star, brightest star in the sky, Sirius, um, but it could have been, you know, uh, close to not quite as bright as Jupiter. Well, you would notice that, and that corresponds to that there were five separate records of this thing, mm-hmm. and we never, we always had this other object thought to be the remnant of the eleven eighty one. I worked on that as my PhD part of my PhD thesis. But it never really fit. It seemed older than just 850 years old. It, it seemed like 2,500 or 3,000 years old. It never fit. It we always it was a shoehorn to try to get that get it into the 850-year age <laughs> uh <laughs> estimate. This this fits without any effort. This, but it's weird. It's a weird, and you can say, hold on, it's just a strange object. Let's leave it alone. It's these odd ball objects. It turns out because it's so faint, much fainter than a normal supernova, we don't know how common this is. We would have missed these faint things in other galaxies. And there's some researchers think that one of three white dwarfs blowing up is this type. It's actually relatively common. We just didn't know it because they're so faint, relatively to a normal exploding star. Absolutely incredible.
0: Yeah, it's so so cool. It's, it's such a cool story, and um, we're sort of we're we're sort of running running out of time here. But um, yeah, I, I, I just wanted to say, you know, thanks thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing this story with us. Um, and who knows, you know, I mean, as I said, I I wish you luck with your proposal, and perhaps if you get some observing time, you could come back and t- and tell us and tell us what you find with with Webb. You know.
1: Well, I don't think I'll need to to come back and tell you because the, yeah. if I get the time, <laughs> this will be the Space Telescope Science Institute. People have already contacted me and said, if you get some images, if you get the time and you take images, we will we will uh, show these. These will be in the public domain, public uh, public uh, media, because it should be an amazing. Uh, it, it will look better than any fireworks. It'll be quite quite impressive so so your readers you know your listeners should eventually see this we're we're hoping that we can uh, get the access to hubble and the web so
0: fantastic well thanks again rob for for coming on sharing the story and yeah best of luck with your proposal yeah thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the radio astronomy podcast from the makers of bbc sky at night magazine For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify.